Welcome, everybody. So tonight we continue our study of 1 Timothy. I hope you are edified by tonight. I know I certainly was in the preparation of it. We'll be discussing verses 12 to 20 of chapter 1. Before I read this section, though, I did want to talk a little bit about Paul and Timothy, but for a different reason than just some more background information. Paul lists himself and Timothy together in the opening lines of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. I think Paul does this for a reason. He wants the church then and now to know the importance of mentoring younger prospective candidates for ministry. By bringing Timothy into the conversation, Paul is giving Timothy's authoritative recommendation as well as his personal approval of Timothy to the churches that he's writing to. It's one way Paul is attempting to spread Timothy's reputation among the early churches. We also have to remember what communication was like back then. No one could pick up a phone and say, hey, what do you know about this guy, Timothy? Have you ever heard about him before? What's his theology like? Nor could anyone send a text or email asking others to weigh in on him. This also gives us an example of how Timothy came to be so reputable in the work of the gospel. Timothy sat under Paul's wing and listened and learned what it meant to be a preacher of God's word. And what was the result of being educated by Paul? The book of Philippians tells us that Paul had no one like Timothy and that he, Timothy, had proven his worth in the service of the gospel. Acts also tells us that Timothy was well spoken of by fellow brothers. And Paul also sent Timothy with another believer named Erastus into Macedonia while he, Paul, stayed in Asia. This also shows us that Timothy is able to handle himself in theological matters. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul also calls Timothy his beloved and faithful child and says he's sending Timothy to the Corinthian church to remind the church of Paul's ways in Christ. So through Timothy, they will see Paul's ways in Christ. Again, this not only tells us that Timothy learned astutely from Paul, but it also tells us that he applied what he learned well. And what a great example we see here for all believers. Timothy is doing exactly what Paul tells the Corinthian church to do in 1 Corinthians 11, and ergo all of us to be imitators of me. This is Paul speaking. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's important that we not only don't lose what Paul is saying for all of us there, but see that Timothy is doing exactly that. Each true born-again believer is called into conformity with Jesus. But because we can't walk with Jesus like the disciples did, we need to come alongside other mature believers and follow their examples. This is one, right, one reason why if you are a mature believer, and if you're not doing it already, you should consider discipling someone younger in the faith because they need to see what true faith looks like when it's lived out against the backdrop of what life will throw at us. They need to see that the mark of a mature believer is that sinning becomes less and less and a life marked with holiness, uprightness, steadfastness, grace, patience, contentment, and zeal can become the norm. Sadly, the lives of many professed believers are not marked by these traits. That's because it takes work. I think I say this every time I speak, but the gift of the gospel we know is free. But it's not necessarily easy. No one wants to go to hell. And so claiming Christ as Savior alone is embraced by many. Bowing to him as Lord, to, as Lord is where many will find themselves at odds when they stand before him. The call to repent and turn from sin to renounce all that we are, to set Jesus above our spouses and our kids, and to live for his glory in all we do is not easy and cannot be done flippantly. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says this, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble 
and contrite in spirit. And that means having a heart of regular repentance. And who trembles at my word. So how do we get there? The study of, and not just the casual reading of God's word, is crucial. Meditation, memorization of the scripture, sitting under good preaching like here at Green Tree, prayerfulness, reading books by those God has raised up for our edification, seeing the importance of the physical church and giving our time, talents, and resources to the church for the mission of the church. These are all imperatives. This also tells us how important being in biblical community is. Paul knew this, and that's why he impressed it many times throughout his writings. So let me read verses 12 to 20 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Remember that line because you might hear it a few more times. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. To verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul immediately recognizes that all his strength to carry out the gospel mission comes from above. Although it's also true that we get our physical strength from God, Paul is focusing on his spiritual strength here. Most everyone in the world has some form of physical strength, and some of them can do amazing things with that. But giving our lives completely over to the mission of the gospel is only something that can come from the Lord. It was something that was once unpalatable to Paul. That was until he met Jesus. Paul then says, because he, Jesus, judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now this language sounds a little strange at first, especially if you invert the sentence and say Paul was appointed to Jesus' service because he was judged faithful. We know Paul, as Saul, as we read, was persecuting Christians and even approving of their deaths. Now that certainly doesn't sound like faithfulness. But Paul isn't also saying that he was faithful, God saw it, and as a result of that, God decided to use him. Like, hey, there's a good faithful guy, let me use him. And it's also not like Paul is reflecting at the end of his life either about his whole ministry after coming to faith and saying, you know what, after all said and done, I was pretty faithful. So what does this being judged faithful mean? Well, the word here for judged in the Greek means more than just that. It can mean someone who is esteemed or can be an official who leads and has important responsibilities. And if you read different Bibles or the translations might say, he, was con he considered me, counted me, or esteemed me faithful. Here the ESV has judged. The same Greek word is also used in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, when King Herod asked the wise men where Jesus was going to be born. They quoted the Old Testament passage of Micah, which speaks of his coming. They said that from Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who would shepherd Israel. That same word for ruler is the same word in 1 Timothy for judged. So as we read this in context, which we must do, and from other verses about Paul, we can say that it means God was going to do the work to make Paul a faithful leader. 
not anything Paul did or had in himself. And this is just another example why digging a little deeper into the text helps with its understanding. This is also an example of why when we read the Bible, we have to be looking at more than what is just in front of our eyes on the pages. If you remember the camp song, there are nuggets of gold buried beneath the surface, and we need help to dig deep to find them. And oh, what a reward there is when we do. In the dirt, if we only dug with our hands, we probably wouldn't last very long and we wouldn't get too deep. We need help, like a shovel. And so outside of preaching, the shovel God has given us to get to these deeper spiritual truths are in part commentaries, contemporary authors, and perhaps most importantly, the writings of church forefathers who sadly are read less and less and are slowly becoming a thing of the past. The harder we dig, though, or the more we avail ourselves of these means, the deeper we will get, so to speak. That's one reason why the bookshelves of pastors and other mature believers are filled with extra biblical writings. Because unless we're like Paul, who was taken up to the third heaven and taught by Jesus himself, we're going to have quite the time trying to find the deeper truths of Scripture solely on our own. So verse 13, in the first part of this verse, Paul says that formerly he was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent to Christianity. What an understatement that is. How bad was Paul? Paul says this about himself in Galatians 1. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Acts 9 says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, probably in chains. Acts 22, Paul says that he persecuted Christians to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Lastly, in Acts 29, Paul says he was convinced, convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, he cast his vote against them. He punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, he persecuted them even to foreign cities, which means he tracked them down. That's some serious hatred for a certain people group. I think we see the same today. Puritan Stephen Charnock says that as Paul was on his way to devour the newborn infant church in Damascus, he was armed with all authority from without, which is the approval and the letters of the religious leaders, and on fire with all the zeal from within to execute his plan. But God had different plans for him and seized Paul at the height of his rage and turned him into an instrument for his God's glory. Some of us here might even be able to relate to that, if only slightly, in the decadence and zeal we had for our sin with no intention whatsoever for God until we met Jesus. Paul then goes on, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Oh, how true that is for all the mercy all true believers have received. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In Paul, we see a pattern of God's grace, mercy, patience, and encouragement. If God can save someone who persecuted Christians, which, as Jesus said to Paul, means that Paul actually persecuted Jesus himself, then he can save anybody. But God does it in his timing. And we really need to consider this, especially when we speak of others, whether they be political figures we don't like, people that don't stand for what we stand for, or perhaps even violent criminals. Of course, this is not, this is not a pass on any of their behavior. And we can hate their behavior, 
and even talk about it. But we must always be careful not to harp too deeply on them or pass judgment on them as people because they may be someone God intends to save at some point in time. If so, we will reign with them forever one day. So again, we never ever condone or agree with their behavior or their sin, but the person we should be praying for. Sometimes that's hard. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This word overflowed means far more in the Greek than it does in English. It means exceedingly plentiful, numerically abundant, or super abounding beyond counting or numbering. Doesn't sound like that in English, does it? That's how much grace and love God has for every one of his children. That's amazing. Although it's not the same Greek word in Ephesians 1 where Paul talks about the riches of grace that were lavished on him, the meanings are similar and true for us. So how do we even begin to comprehend the love that Jesus has for those who are his? This love of God for his children is an attribute we can never comprehend this side of heaven, especially when we realize that this love of God for us originated in the triune God before time began. Ephesians 2 talks of God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. At the height of our sin or in the deepest part of our iniquity, somehow God loved us just as he loved Paul at the height of his persecution of Christians. And sure, it doesn't make sense from a human perspective. But we know God's ways are not our ways. We all have different stories, but when some of us think back to how deeply entrenched in our sin we were, how thankful we should be for God's mercy and love for us. And that has to affect the way we live. Reconciling these two truths, how a depraved sinner can somehow become a precious child of God and then be seen as holy, righteous, and good in his eyes is hard to fathom. For that, we need to look to the cross. Going back to Stephen Charnock, he says that the wisdom of God in redemption is visible and manifesting two contrary truths at the same time and in one act. That's the cross. The greatest hatred of sin and the greatest love to the sinner. In this way, God punishes the sin without ruining the sinner and repairs the ruin of the sinner without indulging the sin. Here is eternal love and eternal hatred, a condemning of sin to what it merited and an advancing of the sinner to what he could not expect while we were still sinners, could any of us have ever believed what awaited us as God's children? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Next set of verses. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world, into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's that phrase again I keep repeating. Most commentators agree that what Paul means here as being the foremost is his recognition of who he was before he came to faith, coupled with the unworthiness in himself to be called and set apart the way he was, contrasted against all the mercy he received. If he had said he was the foremost of sinners, of course it would be easier to interpret as many times we know the, ver the tense of the verbs gives us clues to biblical interpretation. But here we have to rely on what we know about Paul when he persecuted the church 
versus what we know about him as a faithful apostle. So we have to read and interpret this in context. I also think Paul might be acknowledging the heinousness of all sin against the holy God. God hates all sin. He doesn't just give us a bye because we're his children. He never says, Doug, that, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Even as believers, even the smallest of sins, if there is such a thing, was a reason Jesus went to the cross. We'd all agree on the big ones. But next time a curse word crosses our lips, or we gossip, or we think or say things about others that are wrong, especially if they're believers, we need to recognize that Jesus suffered and bled for those sins too. And if you know me as a little aside, I would add speeding and texting while driving to that list. (laughs) We can never take any sin lightly, nor should we ever compare ourselves to others who may outwardly have greater sins and think that we're somehow okay staying in our smaller sins. Or that God called us because our sins weren't as bad as somebody else. And those bigger sins, of course, God's not going to call them. We should never do that. Paul then says that Jesus displayed his perfect patience toward him as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And if you read John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus says he's praying for those who are his and those who will be his. He doesn't pray for the people of the world that aren't his. He prays for those who are his and those who will be his. The patience of God is an attribute that certainly couldn't use more expounding on, so I thought I would talk about that for a little bit. Going back to Puritan Stephen Charnock, and obviously you can tell I like him a lot, he says that God waits until his timing is right to bring salvation unto men. And that, of course, that's men, women, or children. God watched as Paul ran his furious course and let him have the reins and would not put his hand out to bridle him until God's appointed time. God had a plan for Paul, and because all of his attributes always work in perfect unison, one can never be canceled out for the sake of another. This is an area we could struggle greatly in, mostly because we don't have perfect patience. Why things are the way they are in the world and why God doesn't do something about it now? Or when will my loved ones and family members be saved, Lord? When I watch the news and see the horror that's going on around the world, or I see what I believe is the injustice in government, there's a verse from the Old Testament, book of Second Chronicles, chapter 6, verse 23, that I sometimes pray. It says, hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Now I admit, when I pray that, I cherry pick that verse in the sense that I really, I really only mean those that I'm watching on television. The problem is if God did answer my prayer immediately and fully, many of those that I know and love and care for would be judged and sentenced to hell because God has not brought them to faith yet. If God had answered someone's prayer 18 years ago, maybe 19 now, to come, Lord Jesus, come, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you today. So there is a part of me that doesn't mind waiting, and I'm glad that God is so patient. All God's children have their appointed time of coming to faith, and this has already been predetermined by God before the beginning of time. No child of God ever came to faith randomly or by chance, but only by God's individual plan for each one of us. This in no way, in no way negates our responsibility to our children or loved ones or anyone else we want to see come to faith. We can't sit back and go, if God's going to do it, I don't have to do anything. That's completely wrong. We have obligations and responsibilities, so it doesn't negate our responsibilities. But it should bring us comfort. God is a covenantal God, and I believe he has made covenantal promises to his children and their families. That means we can and should pray in faith that he will save them, even if it takes years or decades. As I said earlier, many Christians still find it hard to believe God rescued and saved them. I count myself among that group. And many Christians have family members and friends who are mired and entrenched in deep 
dark sins with seemingly no way out. And it is not wrong to ask God to save them at an early age and to save them from the wickedness of sin. We should absolutely pray that. But that might not be God's plan for them. Because affliction, even for years, may be the means that God uses to bring them to faith. Or maybe he has another reason that we don't know about. And that's hard to swallow. Affliction is not limited to unbelievers either, as we all know, but God always has great purpose in it. So we need to cling to God's promises that he can only do good to his children. If God wants to reach someone in a cancer ward, perhaps he has to afflict one of his children with cancer so they can reach that person. And that can go for many other illnesses. Or he might use affliction to turn us from the world or secure us in the faith. Or maybe God is patiently using an affliction to build the faith or bring to faith a family member who sees our faith and love for God in our affliction. It may be to discipline us. We know this. If we profess to be believers and we regularly are living a life contrary to God's word, God will discipline us at some point. Again, he uses it to strengthen our faith, to remind us that we are not of this world and that a better hope is coming. And it may be so that unbelievers who see our response will want to know who this God is that we worship. How could you respond that way? You have fill in the blank. How could you be filled with some sense of joy through the heartache? Who's this God that you worship? Those are great opportunities we sometimes have to talk about Jesus. As God is sovereign over it all, it may also be that he is using smaller sins to keep us from committing bigger sins. So let's say you're married and you're texting somebody that you know you shouldn't and it's going on and on and you're not in a relationship, let's say, yet and it gets found out and it kind of blows up in your face. Well, that's going to be pretty ugly. But maybe God is saving you from what would happen being in a relationship and being caught in a relationship which would be devastating. And so God uses that. Even though it's a big sin to be doing that, he uses it technically compared to the other one. It's a smaller sin that he in his mercy may reveal to, commit, to stop us from committing a bigger sin. Or maybe, here's a great example, you're driving on the parkway, <laughs> speeding, which for the record is anything over 65, and a trooper pulls you over, you know, and he says, Ma'am, sir, you're speeding. I'm just going to give you a warning because really nice trooper, right? Writes you the warning. Just do me a favor. Stop speeding. He sends you on your way. That's a mercy because he's, God might be saying, hey, slow down because you know what? Next comes a ticket, and that won't be good. So what a mercy those things are, and we probably don't even know it when it happens. Again, we may never know the reason for affliction. Will we love, praise, and serve him with all we are, no matter what our lives look like? Sickness, persecution, loneliness, imprisonment. I don't think anybody wants that. Sadness, loss of job, loss of possessions, loss of friends and family, even untimely death where God's will is not to heal us. We heard Kyle talk about Tim Shorey. Sunday, who has stage four cancer, and it is a great prayer to pray for him to be healed. But we know, if we're honest, probably most people in that situation don't get healed. So along with that, we pray that use his life, and I know Tim, and I know he will, his life will be used to the glory of God, even to the end, and that people would see that and wonder who this God is. Through it all, God is greatly to be praised. Of course, I always want to be clear when I talk about this, it's never Thank you, God, and I'm so happy that I have whatever, fill in the blank. But we must recognize that if any of these things happen to us, although they can come through what theologians would call second causes, God is always the first cause. Second causes, for example, could be a lifelong of eating poorly. That's not going to be good. Drinking to excess, drunkenness for years and years and years, not taking care of our bodies, foolish decisions or actions on our part or others, or even satanic or demonic forces. And there's plenty more examples we could use. The first cause is always God. He wills and ordains 
all things that happen. The scripture tells us he alone kills and makes alive. Not one person dies on this planet, young, middle, or old, unless it's God's will. He alone sends affliction, sickness, pandemics, calamity. He alone sends all weather-related events, whether we would call them good or disastrous. And all you have to do is turn on the channel and look at what's happening in Puerto Rico. And he alone sends war. That's important in these times with what's going on around the world. And we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 in the Old Testament that the war the Israelites were engaged in was of God. This is not the only verse in the scripture that would support this either. So when we talk about the war in Ukraine, God is the first cause. But the second cause, of course, is Putin and his sin. And he will stand. If he doesn't come to faith, we should be praying for him too. If he doesn't come to faith, he will stand in judgment for his sin for that. Or as we heard from Pastor Kyle a couple Sundays ago about the poverty in the one region of Guatemala. It was so severe. The first cause and the reason there's poverty there is because of God. It's by his hand. And from a human standpoint, it's easy to say that the people in both of these situations are innocent victims of war and poverty. But we know God is patiently working out his plan. It's only when we hear stories about the growth of the church in the war-torn areas, as we did, which was amazing, or as Pastor Kyle told us about the Christians in Guatemala who said to the leaders of that poverty-stricken area, if you remember, they refused the gospel to be preached, even if it meant bringing food. It got so bad that they asked them to come. They said, we will bring food, but we will also bring the gospel. It's only then that we see a small sliver into what God is doing and how he is patiently using these things to bring people to him. Great book in the book of Job in chapter 26, it says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? That, by the way, is a great memory verse. As a quick aside, this is one reason why God tells us through Paul not to be anxious about anything. We can't possibly see or know all of what God is doing and why. But the more we grow in faith, the more we will understand that although there may be what appears to be chaos in this world from a human perspective, there is no such thing as chaos from a godly perspective because he is in control over everything. That means everything, whether it's small, whether it's big, anything that ever was, is, or will happen is going perfectly according to his will and design. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, every leaf that falls to the ground, every lightning bolt that hits the ground, the path of every fish in the oceans, and every bird in the sky is somehow controlled by God. I would add that to the degree that where our anxiety is, in relation to the things of life is probably relative to the degree of trust we have in God or understanding of his sovereignty and providence. I want to repeat that. To the degree that where our anxiety is in relation to the things of life, fretting over and over and over to the things of life, is relative to the degree of trust we have in God and an understanding of his sovereignty and providence. Not that we can't be concerned or even greatly concerned about things in this life. Of course we will because God made us people with emotions. But when concern turns to regular worry and anxiety, a pattern over and over, it assumes that things are out of control, which they can't be if God is sovereign over all. And I would say that God uses those things in our life for the purpose of building our faith. Seeing God's goodness and all he does should help us in trying to fathom the greatness of his patience and not wetting his sword of judgment against rebel sinners. We deserve nothing but damnation for all of our sin, but God in his great mercy and patience waited. He waited as we added over and over and over to the measure of our sin. Why he didn't enact rightful judgment on us is a mystery that only God holds, but he didn't. 
he waited patiently at the same time, loving what was unlovable and hating every bit of our sin. And so think about God's patience in relation to ours. When someone does or says something harmful to or about us, we can fly off the handle and want immediate revenge. Thankfully, God never responds that way. A quickness to respond in revenge or with an improper response is actually a sign of immaturity and shows a person's inability to control themselves or lacking in restraint. So next time we want to respond immediately to a negative Facebook post or a seemingly derogative text we receive, we shouldn't. Copy down your response, put it in your notes, pray about it. God, is this really how I should respond to this person? And see what happens over the few days. The stronger a person is, the more control they have over themselves and the more restraint they're able to exercise. God's slowness to anger and punishment is actually a greater argument of his perfect power. God puts up with sin after sin, never responding haphazardly, all the while waiting until his time is right to bring either condemnation or salvation to the sinner. Ultimately, God's perfect patience is exemplified through the life and death and resurrection of his son. Every aspect of Jesus' life was perfectly planned out. Justice could have come sooner, but God's patience exercised restraint until the proper time. He was orchestrating an untold number of events, conversations, and interactions according to this perfect plan. Think about Lazarus for a second. Jesus waited to come to him. We know the wait wasn't easy for Jesus because he loved Lazarus. When he did come, what happened? Lazarus had died, and he had been in the tomb for four days. Why did Jesus wait? The text in John 11 tells us that because of Lazarus' death, many Jews had come to console Martha and Mary. When they saw Lazarus raised from the dead by Jesus, many believed. If Jesus had come sooner and simply healed Lazarus from the illness, there would be many who would not have seen him raised from the dead, which Jesus used to make them believe in him. We think he should have moved a little sooner. I know Martha and Mary had thought, Jesus, we need you to move now, but he waited patiently. Just a couple verses on God's patience, which you probably know, and then we'll move on. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Romans 9, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath? And 1 Peter 3.20 talks about how God waited patiently in the days of Noah. That was a long wait while the ark was being built to fulfill his promise, his purposes. So for us, understanding the patience of God should help us to be patient with others. All right, let's get back to Paul. He then writes, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How could Paul not cry out with all he is over the glorious, transforming power of God in his life? Hence the stupendous doxology coming immediately after the preceding verses. This should be our cry, too. We must also remember that Paul is writing this to Timothy. So I think Paul is also encouraging Timothy by these words, by saying, preach the gospel, Timothy, and you will see the transforming power of God in other people's lives, and you and they will proclaim the same thing. Next set of verses. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So this word charge here can mean to instruct as a way of living. It infers a command, as in the military, that is fully authorized, as if it had gone through all the proper or necessary channels. It is no light word and implies a big responsibility. Paul's charge to Timothy is specific to his holding faith in a good conscience, but also encompasses everything he's telling him in this letter. We also need to be cognizant of this with all of God's commands on our life. We cannot take any of it lightly or casually. 
Paul then mentions these prophecies that were previously made about Timothy. What were they? We're not really given any information on what these prophecies are, but Paul says that it is by them he might wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So I think it's safe to say that they would have been words of encouragement, blessings, uh, and some other things to help him in his ministry. Paul knows this is important to Timothy and us because of the spiritual war that we're in. And for that, Paul told us we need to be a good soldier. As one commentator said, the moment we began our Christian life, we entered a lifelong battle. And I don't think anyone here would deny that. And this battle that we're in is not going to be easy. And if you're here tonight and are a relatively newer Christian and haven't experienced any trials and tribulations yet, I wish I could say that you wouldn't, but I can't. We see proof of that in Acts 14 where Paul says that it's only through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. To fight this battle, we're told that holding faith and a good conscience are key. Holding here means to hold fast, possess, and to keep. It's a continual work that we need to do with the help of the Holy Spirit. We'll hear more about this in chapter, chapter 6 where Paul tells Timothy to pursue to strive, to go after the deep things of faith. There are vast numbers of people who make a profession of faith, but far fewer who actually possess faith. The former only know Jesus as Savior, the latter bow to him as Lord, because they understand these deep truths and know what it means to hold faith and a good conscience. The former live casually in the things of faith, live happily with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, treat God more as their buddy than who he is as the Almighty, don't see the importance of the local church, and scarcely leave a mark of who they are in their profession as they walk through life and cross paths with others. True believers are serious about their faith. They reject the ways of the world, even though they know they have to live in it. They treat God with reverence and respect and obedience that is due him. They love the church and they can't help but to leave a mark as they walk through life and cross paths with others. Hymenius and Alexander, whom we read about in verse 20, seem to be of the former group. Now, what do we make of them? Are they true Christians who have sinned greatly, still brothers in the Lord, or are they doomed? This verse is directly tied, although in opposition to the prior verse, of holding on to faith and a good conscience, whereas these two seem to have rejected it. This is why Paul wants us to see the, de the dangers of weak faith. It's also what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 when he says, All believers should be on the course to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why does he say that? He follows up with, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Or as we heard from Pastor Dan on Sunday, we are commanded to grow in our faith and move on from milk to solid food. Because staying in the former, according to the word, is akin to being unskilled in the word of righteousness. We cannot defend or recognize deceit unless we're knowledgeable in the truth. This phrase, rejecting this, in the Greek is not casual or an accidental error. The two of them didn't go, oops. That's not what it means, but implies a strong, personal, and deliberate refusal or rejection of biblical truths by these two men. It is to push or thrust something away with force. So again, what do we make of these two? The absolute truth is, we just don't know for sure. As we read through the book of Hebrews on Sunday, one point that semi-regularly sticks out is holding fast our faith to the end as proof of our faith. This certainly doesn't seem to apply to them. Does that mean that true believers can backslide? Or even backslide terribly? Of course they can. They shouldn't, but they can. Interestingly, Paul does say that they had faith, but made a shipwreck of it. Their shipwreck faith is just that. Just as a ship is destroyed when it wrecks, which we know Paul was familiar with, there is an implication here that there was a destruction of their faith. And this is difficult to interpret because we know if you're truly born again, you can't lose your faith because God is the one who keeps you in your faith. 
So I suppose we won't know their fate until we get to heaven. But here's something I know we can all agree on. This is not the place we want to be in when we stand before Jesus. We want to be strong and bold and ready. This type of situation these two men in can be very touchy when it happens. Jesus is the only true judge, so we have to leave that part up to him. This side of heaven, though, we can make observations and decisions based on what we see. But we leave the final judgment to him. So we want to be careful never to say that a person who professes faith is not a Christian and is going to hell because of their behavior. Personally, what I would say is that we can say that a person who never shows any fruit or follows false teaching or anything else like these two are behaving in a way that regardless of what they say about being Christians, I just can't agree. Hey, brother, I know what you're telling me, but I see your life and I, I can't agree with you. I don't condemn them. I wouldn't say anything. They're going to hell, but I would urge them to consider their ways because their eternity is at stake. The church as an institution must take a greater stance, though. When Christians get caught up in sin to the degree they did, the church has to act. And that's exactly what Paul did. He handed them over to Satan by exercising church discipline, most likely excommunicating them. The scripture doesn't tell us when this happened, but it seems likely that it occurred during Paul's three years in Ephesus in the early 50s. We also read of the same type of treatment of professed Christians who sin greatly in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul uses the same handing over to Satan language. So what is this handing over to Satan, and what is its purpose? I actually read a couple commentators who seem to think that they're being handed over to Satan, inferred some type of physical punishment that they received actually from the hand of Satan, kind of like Job, through the peculiar powers the apostle Paul had. And, and they say that because it says he was handed, they were handed over to Satan. There really is no biblical basis for that, though. Additionally, in 2 Timothy, Paul speaks of Alexander the coppersmith, who did him great harm, and whom Paul said the Lord would repay according to his deeds. Here again, there's no biblical proof on whether or not this was the same Alexander Paul spoke about here. So anything more than that would just be conjecture. But if it was, clearly Paul was waiting on the Lord's timing for whatever was coming Alexander's way. And that's a model for us. Romans 12 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, and never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So we leave it up to the Lord. Church discipline is meant to be restorative. And that's what Paul's hope was when he said that he was handing them over to Satan by removing them from the church. That's what handing them over to Satan means. We know the church is the kingdom of Jesus and the world is in the power of the evil one. That's what the Bible says. So when you hand somebody over to the world, you're putting them back to where they started. And his hope was that they would learn not to blaspheme. But here again, what I mentioned about taking church seriously comes into play. God will not be mocked. And to mock his church or to treat it casually or with the seriousness and not with the seriousness of what God has ordained is grievous. The physical church, and by that I mean the four walls, six walls, eight walls, whatever we have, the building through the preaching of the word is the means God has ordained to bring his glory into the nations. We cannot take it lightly. One, because God doesn't take it lightly. As the Bible is a picture of the church. And if a person doesn't believe in the physical building of the church, I think they have a lot of pages they have to rip out of their Bible. And two, because God has given great authority and power to the church and its elders. In Matthew 18, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and ergo all future church elders about a person in unrepentant sin, he talks about removing them from the church and treating them as an unbeliever. Then he says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
Now, to be clear, this does not mean that pastors can just make something up, anything they want, and if two of them agree, God will follow along. That's not what it means. But God has given them awesome authority and responsibility. That goes in line with what Pastor Kyle said last week, that the work of the church is the most important of all works in the world. This binding and loosening are in accord with what God's word states. Or as one theologian wrote, whatever you forbid on earth must be whatever is already forbidden in heaven. And by that he means whatever is already written or aligns with God's word. So they can't say, hey, we're making this up. It's not in scripture. It aligns with God's word and that's how they bind it. If a person is hardened and unrepentant, the church via the elders has the authority from God to bind them in the sense of declaring their unrighteousness and removing them from the body. If the person repents, they have the authority from God to then confirm their righteousness and readmit them. As Puritan William Perkins says, this authority is just as solemn as if God himself spoke it from heaven. Although this is a calling and privilege of the pastor alone, it is a huge burden for them. And I can guarantee you not one of them wants to ever have to go through it. This is not only what happened to Hymenius and Alexander by the hand of Paul, but because church discipline is lacking in so many churches today, it is also the state of many today who commit grievous sins which go unchecked and are never brought out into the open. Whether or not these church leaders exercise their biblical responsibilities is something they will have to one day explain when they stand before God. Praise God that here at Green Tree, we have leaders who will not let this type of behavior go unnoticed or unchecked without fulfilling their responsibilities. And so we need to pray for them because that's a huge, huge burden. Even if it's not sins worthy of excommunication, which thankfully are not the norm, sadly there are many, many more who hang on the fringe and care or know more about the stats of their favorite players in sports, what the latest trends are, or who's who in Hollywood, than they do of their Bible, thinking about the seriousness of their faith, or their devotion to the church and its people. This again is why knowing and following God's word, sitting under good preaching, and being in biblical community are vital the believer's growth. Friends, this life is a battle. As you know, it's filled with sadness, sorrow, heartache, and disappointments. There's nothing we can do to stop it from happening or to make the pain in our hearts simply go away when it does. But we can live boldly, zealously, and confidently, being filled with joy, peace, and contentment and rejoicing always, almost always, and when these things touch us. None of us can do it perfectly this side of heaven, but I can assure you anything that we lose in this world in pursuit of this will be well worth it. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.